What a joy to be here. What a joy. You guys have a very talented worship team. Way to go, Kev. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> uh, some of you know that uh, your pastor and I have known each other for several, maybe a decade or more now. And uh, right now we're both serving on the California Baptist University Board of Trustees. I'm serving as the chairman and he's serving as the vice chairman. I expect that by uh, this time next year he'll probably be the chairman and I will have rotated off. But uh, he, he is widely respected uh, throughout the state of California. And what a great privilege uh, you guys have to have such a marvelous guy as Pastor Mike. Just a really a solid, solid guy. Uh, today, we're going to look at chapter 26 of Acts. It's the 30th message in your series called Sent. You're getting near the end. And uh, as I was uh, reading through this chapter, trying to figure out, like, what does it have to say for us today? For this church, how do we apply it today? And it, 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 at first, it, was, it took a while for me to sort of grab a, find some traction, because what it literally is, is Paul is defending himself against the charges of the Jews that he has done something to uh, disrespect the, the temple in Jerusalem, which has not happened, in fact. But the Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders at least in Jerusalem, want to have him killed because he has been spreading the Christian message now for a decade or more. And uh, so they have brought some trumped-up charges, and uh, there's been several defenses. I, I think Mike's already, Pastor Mike's already taught you about this. This is the fifth such defense. The uniqueness of this one is that the Roman governor, Festus, has just taken over for Felix, and so he's trying to get up to speed on what's, what, why is Paul here, and uh, what he is interviewed Paul, and the best he can tell, uh, th this is nothing legal. He should be released, but Paul has now demanded. He's appealed to Caesar. He wants to take his case to Caesar. And, uh, and so we're going to, in a sense, it's like the third time we're going to hear Paul's testimony. It's like the umpteenth time we're going to hear Paul's uh, defense and so forth. And so it, it felt a little redundant to me, like, how are we going get, to get a grip on this? So I asked two questions of the text, which I think will help us. And here's the first question. What is Paul's goal in his address to King Agrippa? What's new about this is that Festus, who's new, he's the governor, and under him, uh, also an authority, is the king of Judea, if you will, or that general area, uh, King Agrippa, who's the great-great-grandson of Herod the Great, who is the one who had the children... Uh, murdered in Bethlehem that were two and under during the birth of Jesus. So this Herod and his family goes way back in terms of anti-Christian. But Agrippa at least is Jewish and understands the, the, the Jewish religion better than Festus. And so Festus sets up this uh, big event so that Festus is there, Agrippa, his wife is there, dignitaries from all over the place, high and low, are there, and Paul is given another chance to uh, deliver a defense. So in verse 2, here's what Paul says, and here's the literal reason uh, that we're having this meeting. Paul says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. So that's the real context historically for why we're having this speech one more time, at least as, as I read it in the book of Acts. It feels like one more time. 
At the end of this speech or message or defense, I think Paul uh, prods King Agrippa in a way that you see what Paul was really up to in this situation. In verse 28, it says, this is the end of the message, then Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, is that what you're up to here? I mean, I thought you were going to defend yourself. It seems to me you're preaching kind of almost an evangelistic message, trying to get me to come over to your side. And Paul's response is that whether it's a short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. In other words, might become a follower of Jesus Christ. So here's what I think is the real reason that Luke puts this in here and what Paul's real purpose was. Paul uses the occasion that is about defending your life in court to preach a message in a room full of absolute unbelievers, uh, both Roman style and sort of Jewish style, meaning unbelievers in Christ, at least, who do believe the Bible. And he is giving an evangelistic message. So what Paul does here is he takes an occasion that didn't, wouldn't seem to be a, a natural. Normally, you'd stay on message, just making sure you don't get killed or go to jail. But he turns it into a message trying to persuade people to become followers of Christ. And so here's my kind of my application of the whole message that I'm going to give today. And that is that you can be a witness wherever you are, no matter what's going on, whatever situation you're in or wherever you are, you can be and you should be. If you're a follower of Christ, you should be taking advantage of any and every situation to try to persuade people, to influence them, to invite them. Uh, and I'll give you just a couple of of ways in which Jesus highlights this. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. It's not you might be or you could be. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the first part of the book of Acts. In all Judea and Samaria, that's kind of the middle of the book of Acts and to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of Paul's portion of the book of Acts all the way to the end where he goes on missionary journeys to uh, Turkey, which is uh, that modern-day Turkey, which was called Asia or Asia Minor, then into Greece, and then eventually he's going to go on to Rome. Uh, so uh, Jesus also taught us this in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's kind of an indication of leading them to become followers of Christ and indicating their profession of faith by baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's teaching them the ways of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the, the Bible, and getting them to become followers or obedient uh, appliers of the Word of God. Now, I know Pastor Mike has shared this with you, but I want to go over it one more time. In the Great Commission, there's only one verb that has the power of a command. It's called it in the imperative form. And the command, the only command in the Great Commission is make disciples. That's a one, that's one Greek word. It's a long word, but it's one word. And so the command that Jesus gives to all followers is go wherever you go, make disciples. Then in this same passage, it gives three participial verbs. Now, participles are helping verbs. They tell you how to go about making disciples. 
And the three participles are translated in, in English, go, baptizing, and teaching. So baptizing is leading them to become followers of Christ and professing their faith in baptism. Teaching is studying more deeply and beginning to obey the word of God. Now the go, the way English translators have handled it, and, and I get it, I, I would be upset if they changed it, They've translated as if it's the command, go. But that's not really a, a more accurate command of the Greek form of that, because it's a participle, would be going, or, as the uh, professors in seminary would tell you, it, it would read like this, as you are going, as you are going about life, make disciples, lead people to Christ, deepen them in their faith and in their obedience. So what Paul is doing here is he is going about his life. And in this phase, his life is on the line in the legal courts of Rome. But he's using that occasion to make disciples. He's actually going to give an evangelistic message. And so that's how I think it can apply to us. Now, I want you to know it's very important for you to understand how much and how powerful it is that you try to influence people on a daily basis, no matter what's going on. My wife, uh, when, our, when we were first starting the church at Clovis Hills, uh, she thinks, uh, she's always thought that being a pastor's wife has a, is both a blessing in many ways, and it's sort of a curse in the sense that you sort of live in a fishbowl and everybody wants to know your business or is watching you all the time. And early on in the life of Clovis Hills, something was going on in her life. It was actually at work. It was a work issue. And it really had her disturbed. They'd made some, some awkward decisions at work. And she was very upset about it. But we were just starting the church. And she's, so there's a lot of people we just barely know that are starting to go to this new church. And so she's going through a, a store with her little basket. And because she's upset and rehearsing this thing, you can imagine, she's grabbing this and throwing it in the basket. Grabbing this and throwing it in the basket. You know, we've all done this sort of thing. And then she pulls up you know, to the checkout counter. And the gal says, you're Pastor Steve's wife. And she thinks, oh, crap. People are always in my business. And I, I share that to say, we are a witness. You can be a good witness or a bad witness, but people surprisingly know who you are, or at least they should. The other thing I want to say about this is you don't have, a, have to have a spectacular testimony like Paul, where he persecutes Christians, meets Jesus by being knocked off his horse and spoken to directly, and then starts propagating the gospel. You don't have to have that dramatic. You might have a real milk toast testimony, but your story is your story, and it's still powerful. In fact, I, I would say you need to own your story. Somebody back there was telling me that in CR, one of the people here was, was saying to her that she has a, a kind of testimony envy because her life's been kind of milk toast. Well, please don't do that. Everywhere you go, you can be a test, you can be a witness to Christ. And you should be, not just when you're at church, that, that might be an obvious thing, but when you're out in the world, when you're shopping, when you're you know, getting your hair cut, when all the different places that you are, let that be times where you're seeing, like Paul, a bigger picture. This is not just a legal courtroom. This is an opportunity to share Christ. Well, then I ask the question, well, then if that's the case, what does Paul do to persuade King Agrippa? And he does two things. A point A would be this. He shares his personal testimony. And I want us to look at that and then think about our personal testimony. And then B, kind of a little bit further down in your notes, if you're one of those note takers, he shares the gospel. 
with uh, King Agrippa and all who were in that meeting that day. But let's start with his personal testimony. Your personal testimony is made up of three different parts. Uh, and Paul breaks it down this way. It's, he gives his life before Christ. What was I like before I met Christ? Then he gives how he met Christ. What were the circumstances around which he became a Christian or a follower of Christ? And then he tells something about his life after Christ. Since he's received Christ, what's his life like now? How has it changed? So I want you to look at these three, three steps because all of you have, if you are a follower of Christ, you have a testimony that includes elements of all three of these. So here's, let me just show you. I'm not going to read all the verses, but just enough you can get the feel of it. Verse 4 says this on life before Christ. Paul says, The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. In other words, these people know me that are accusing me. I've been among them since I was a child. I grew up before them. That I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. He kept all of the laws that he knew of as best he could. In fact, in Philippians, I think he, he says, as to righteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees at least, I was faultless. I mean, he was a very serious religious man. And in verse 9 he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He had become convinced, like the leaders of his day in Jerusalem, that this sect of Christians was ruining the, the name of, of Judaism all over the Roman world. And so he became convinced that the only right way to do it was to persecute Christians, to try to uh, torture them out of their faith, or when necessary, he said, I would throw in my lot or I would vote for the, for the killing of Christians if it would help. And in fact, that's how you first meet Paul in the book of Acts. You meet him as one assenting to the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He's holding the cloaks of all the men who stoned Stephen to death. And he would have seen Stephen die not whimpering and not sad and not claiming not fair, but looking into heaven, seeing the face of Jesus and dying with joy and glory on his face. And it must have left some kind of impression in him, but not enough to turn him from what he was doing. So how did Paul come to faith in Christ? Well, as he was persecuting Christians, both in Jerusalem, he got permission to go to Damascus and do the same thing. And so he tells uh, King Agrippa how he met Christ. He said, about noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road, on the road to Damascus. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, that would have been the, the normal Hebrew uh, language that he would have grown up with, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad was just a sharp stick that if you pricked a, uh, a, a sheep, it would sort of get them to go the right direction, and if they were still obstinate, they might kick back saying stop it, you know, more or less stop it. But if you kick back into a sharp stick, it hurts worse. And Jesus is telling Paul, you've got it all wrong. You're persecuting me, and kicking at me is only hurting your soul. And so then Paul asks, when he's down on his face, hearing the Lord speak to him, he said, then I asked, who are you, Lord? And he re the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied. And this is how he met Jesus. Now you'd have to admit, that's a spectacular conversion testimony. And some of you maybe in CR have those. Others of us have something much more mild. You know, our, 
our conversion, I've heard people say, well, I grew up kind of on the back row of a Baptist church, and I can't hardly remember a time that I wasn't a Christian. And sometimes, you know, the truth is the truth, and so don't, don't shy away from that. Just tell your story as it is. And then he shares what his life was like after he met Christ. He says in verse 16, Jesus said to me, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I am sending you. By the way, that's the title of the whole series that Pastor Mike has done on on the book of Acts. It's called Sent. You're all sent. Jesus is sending every one of you just like he sent Paul. I am sending you. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. So what Paul is saying is, I went about then preaching the gospel. In fact, since then, he tells us in one of the books in Corinthians, he said, I was stoned and left for dead twice. I've been shipwrecked out in the open sea for days on end. I've been in fear of my life in the countryside and in cities, and God has just constantly saved me. So he went from a persecutor and murderer of Christians to being the persecuted one, and yet you can see now the power of his testimony is, I haven't stopped witnessing for Christ because I've met him. He's alive, and he's seen me faithful right to this time that I'm here telling you today. Well, again, I want to challenge you. One of the ways that you can give witness is to know your testimony and to say bits of it. You don't, you don't say it the same way every time. In fact, there's three times that Paul's testimony is told in the book of Acts, and there's little details that are added or subtracted each time. They don't contradict. Sometimes he's just shortening it. This, this, uh, in, in this chapter, he doesn't talk about Ananias, who baptized him and who actually uh, kind of anointed him and get, gave his, his sight back because it wasn't pertinent to the, the sharing of the testimony to Agrippa. But he told enough of the testimony that it, it was persuasive. So one of the reasons that Luke puts Paul's testimony in here a third time is he wants you and I, 21 centuries later, to realize just how solid the evidence for Christ's resurrection is. How else do you explain a persecutor going to a persecuted one propagating as an apostle the very gospel he used to persecute? And why wouldn't he stop? Well, the only way you can explain Paul's life is that he met the living Christ, and then Christ anointed him and gave him power. Well, the same could be said for all of you. Shirley and I recently moved 45 miles from the, the church where we have uh, been leaders for, back, well, we started in 1991, and four years ago, I led the church to invite, uh, to, to vote uh, Dr. Sean Beattie in to be our pastor, and I went on staff as just kind of a teaching pastor, and now I'm part-time, and so we've moved further away from the church. Now, we still attend there, uh, and our church, there are about 16, over 1,600 people who worship there each Sunday. And so we believe that the, the bigger the church gets, the smaller the church must become. So we believe in small group ministries. It's, it's the life of our church. We have about 70 to 75 small groups that meet all over, all different days in, of the week and times of the day. And we hadn't been a part of one since we moved to, this, moved to Chowchilla, which is 45 minutes north and west. So recently, the small group pastor approached us and said, why don't you open your home? Let's advertise it and see if anybody would like to join you. And we were kind of shocked. So we said, let's do it. And it turns out 
about four weeks ago, we, uh, no, excuse me, two months ago, we started our small group, and we have nine people who come to this group. One, one couple actually lives in Chowchilla and goes to the church there. One lives in Madeira, about 15 miles away, and we're closer to them than, than to the church itself. And then another one drives all the way from Fresno, all the way up. And it was, it just, it's been so precious. There's something about getting to know other Christians, hearing their testimony, hearing, telling they, they know me and I know them. We care for each other. There's a power there. Well, this last week we were sharing our testimonies in our small group. And uh, one, one of the couples, uh, Lisa and Milton, Lisa's, here's Lisa's simple, I just love the simplicity of it. She said, my life was just a chaotic wreck. She said, I'd lost my first husband. I was alienated from my daughter. And life was just, just stressful and broken and, and alienated. And then uh, I met Milton and he invited me to come to Clovis Hills. And I came, I put my faith in Christ and I have peace today. He has put my life back together. And I have so much joy that I haven't had for most of my life. And that's her simple testimony. You see, I think it's more important that you talk about what Christ is doing for you now that you know him than that you have some terrible sin story that you can talk about having turned around. The important thing is what is Christ doing? And when people feel that, then, as Lisa says, I invite everybody I know to come and check out our church because I want them to know the peace and joy that I found there in Christ. Feel how simple that is. It's not long. It doesn't take a lot. Now, the other couple, one of the other couples that have joined us, they're in their 30s and they have their first child. He's about two, two and a half months old right now. And the way they got together was uh, he was a Christian but wasn't really walking with Christ. And she was and has been for her whole life, they're, uh, in their early 30s, adamantly anti-Christian. And she loved to argue Christians down. That was kind of her deal. And so how did they meet? Well, I remember asking them, how did you guys get married anyway? And they said, well, we met online. We used like one of those match.com things. What? So new way to meet people you could marry, I guess. But <laughs> let me just say this. If they'd have asked me as pastor, which of course they didn't, I would have said, that's not a good idea. That's probably going to go badly. I, I, I really can't encourage anybody to marry a non-Christian on purpose with your eyes wide open. Or even for a non-Christian, I'd say, do you know what you're getting into? So they, but they did before we met them. And then just what you would think is eventually they started fighting and fighting and fighting. And then she became pregnant. And the one who was anti-Christian got so hopeless for her marriage and for her coming child that she said one weekend, can I go to church with you tomorrow? And she came to our church, still anti-Christian, but hopeless. And she heard the gospel and gave her life to Christ. And it transformed their marriage and transformed the hope that they have. Now that's powerful. Her way of simply witnessing today is just to talk about, she used to talk about anti-Christian stuff on her Facebook page and all the social media before. Now all of her friends from there are hearing about her going to church. She doesn't even have to ask for witnessing opportunities. They come to her and say, what the heck happened to you, girl? <laughs> and she gets to share the benefits that she has met. It has saved my marriage. 
Your story, even though it may not feel as powerful as that or, or maybe as simple as Lisa's, has power. Take advantage, no matter where you are or what you're doing or what the situation is, use it as an opportunity to share Christ. By the way, I, I, I got to share because I was blessed by this. I was watching the, uh, the Belmont Stakes yesterday. I'm not really a better on horse races, and, but uh, this time of year I get interested, you know, in all the different uh, races and can you complete the Triple Crown. And I, so I watched, uh, I think the horse's name is Justify, win the Triple Crown, only the 13th or 14th horse to do so. And as they were uh, interviewing the, the, the jockeys, a 52-year-old uh, guy, uh, just a really precious guy. So the, the, the media person is on a horse holding a microphone in his face while he's coming back around to receive the prize. And she says, what, what do you say and how was it? And, and he just, he's, he's almost in tears, and he says, well, first I just want to say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for letting this happen. And I'm thinking, that's so powerful. He's in the midst of millions of people watching him. Probably billions of dollars just bet on whether his horse is going to win or lose. And what does he tell the world? Thank Jesus for the opportunities that I've had in life. See, it's so simple, but so powerful. Well, what's the other thing that uh, Paul does here? Well, he shares the gospel. And let me just uh, give you a sense of this. <clears throat> uh, I'll give you the three fill in the blanks first. He shares the essence of the gospel. In other words, what's the core message that you would say, I've shared the gospel? He shares the effect of the gospel. What kind of effect should the gospel have if you receive it? And then he shares the entrance into the gospel. That is to say, how would one go about receiving the gospel so that you are a part of it? So let me break this down. The essence of the gospel that Paul shares here starts in verse 22. He says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. He's saying that the Old Testament prophesied that a Messiah would come. He would suffer for our sins. He would die, and he would be raised back to life. That, whether you know it or not, is the gospel in a nutshell. Let me take you just for a second, because I want you to see this. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a short definition of the gospel. And I'll, I'll read just a portion of it to you. In 15.1, he says, Paul says, this is out of 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So it's important to be reminded of the gospel that, that was preached to us. By this gospel you are saved. Now, this gospel doesn't change, and this is the gospel that saves you. So what is it? What is it? Tell us what it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Did you know that is the gospel? There's an elegance to it. You can say it so simply. You, you, you could make it into just two parts. He died for our sins. He was raised to new life to give us new life. It's that simple. Well, why is that the whole gospel? Because the gospel is something that God has done. It is good news. And the elegance of it works this way. The fact to say that Jesus died for our sins or suffered for our sins, that is to say there has to be an acknowledgement that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That I know I have not kept my own promises, that at some level I'm a hypocrite, 
The things that I've criticized other people for, or the standards I said I was going to live by, I have failed to keep them. I, I failed to keep my own standards, much less God's standards. Now, here's what I found among people. If you're not in an ego argument with somebody, everybody knows that they're a sinner. Now, if you turn it into an argument, then people will not admit that just because they're going to not let you win an argument. But if we're going to appeal and say, I haven't kept my own promises. I haven't lived the way I want to live or God wants me to live. I'm a, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. To say that God sent His Son to die for my sins is a loving statement from a loving God that He's not trying to hold it against us, but He's come to rescue us. But I've got to admit that I'm a sinner, that I've, I, there's a fault there in me and I need help. To say that Jesus was risen from the, from the dead, that is to say that He's no common pro, uh, just philosopher or He's not just... Uh, you know, Gandhi or Buddha or somebody, he actually is the Son of God. He came from another realm, came into our life, and then proved that there was life after death. He proved that he was the Son of God by his raising. And since he was raised from the dead, he is alive today to help you with all the problems that you will have. Whether it's to have a broken heart about something, to have a broken marriage, you can have health problems. You can bring all of the problems you have to Jesus. It's the essence of the gospel. It's so simple to share. But what's the effect? If someone hears the gospel, what kind of effect should it have? Well, Jesus tells us the kind of effect he wanted Paul to have. Jesus says in verse 18 to Paul, I want you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's, that, that's, that's one of the effects. You receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. There is something marvelous about being forgiven of our sins by the God of heaven and then made a part of the family. You're given a place. You belong. When we were going around in our small group this last week uh, sharing our testimony, there's something that you, I, I, you have to experience it to expose your, some of your darkest failures and still know that everybody still loves and accepts you because they have dark failures too. But all of us are covered by the blood of Christ. There is a belonging there that it, it meets deep, some of the deepest needs of our life. Some people go through all of life and even in their marriage, they don't have that kind of acceptance and belonging. And I just want you to know there's something very powerful. The effect of the gospel sets you up to go to heaven and to live there forever. And then lastly, the entry of the gospel. What does it take to get into, to receive the gospel, to enter into the benefits of it? And Paul says in verse 20, I preach that they should repent, repent of this idea of living without God, turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. And he's saying that God's helped me, and I'm here right now today to this large audience, telling you what God has done and seeing me through. And Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I love his response. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. I love how he didn't strike back. By the way, catch the, the, the tone. 
The tone in American politics is ripping our country apart because the two sides only know about their winning. They don't know about something higher than them winning and pulling us back together. When Paul says, I'm not insane, he gives a respectful, most excellent Festus. He doesn't say, you're an idiot too. He doesn't, just catch the tone here. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and it's reasonable. This is what Christianity is. First of all, it's true that Jesus came from above into our world, lived a perfect life and died for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead. That is true. And many people think, well, that's a miracle and those don't happen, so this can't be, so it must be insane. And Paul says, no, it's reasonable. I, if you haven't resolved the reasonableness of your faith, I just pray you'll do a little reading. Uh, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, outstanding. I mean, you'll have to think, but it's outstanding. He takes on all the things that people throw at us today to say that Christianity is irrational, and he shows it's reasonable. Or take uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Faith or The Case for Christ. Read up on and see how reasonable it is to believe that Christianity is true and Christ can be depended upon. But then he goes on. Paul says this in, after responding to Festus saying, it's true and reasonable. He says, the king is familiar with these things. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. In other words, it's done in real history, and he knows the people that can validate this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, there's people like Festus who have no Bible background, and they think it's insane when they first hear it. And then there's people like Agrippa, Agrippa who know that God can act in history and what he said in his word, and it's not as uh, off-putting. But Paul's trying to put a finger on on Agrippa to make a decision. He says, I know you believe the prophets. I know you do. And Festus, uh, excuse me, Agrippa stops him right there. He says, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul tells you why he is given this kind of a defense. Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. That is to say, a Christian. Now, there required a time. Paul is saying 21 centuries later, he wants all of you who have listened to his message today to become what he was back then, a Christian, a follower of Christ on his way to heaven, adopted into the family of God with sins forgiven. Let me tell you my own story as I kind of close this out. Uh, the way I got into the Christian realm is that when I was 13 years old, going on 14, heading into a freshman year of high school, my mom decided that all of us kids, there were four of us, I was the oldest, were going to go to church. So after not going to church for 13 years, we were all loaded in the, in, in the car and we were driven to church. My mom asked my dad, you want to go to church with us? And my dad said, well, when I was a kid, I was made to go to church. I don't have to go to church now and I'm not going. So he didn't go. But mom made sure all the kids went. So while we were at church, I, I was there for four, almost every Sunday for four years. I had a spectacular Sunday school teacher uh, and then sat in on, on good preaching uh, and so forth. 
And I was, little by little, I was, began to understand the gospel and then drink it in and begin to believe parts of it. Uh, my Sunday school teacher actually would take me out for a Coke every now and then and press the point to me that, Steve, uh, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I said, yeah, I think I do believe that. He said, then, why, why won't, or is there any reason you wouldn't give your life to Christ then right here today, right here in this little coffee shop? And I remember being very obstinate. Oh, no, I'm not doing that. I can't give my life, all right? I, I like running my life. I, I don't want to do that. So I believed enough after four years, but not enough to actually receive or take a stand, much like Paul was trying to prompt Agrippa to do. And so then, as it turned out, I, I never made a decision for Christ. And after graduating from high school in June, I was getting ready to go to college in September. That summer... Uh, waiting between the two schools. I went to college at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I walked in on my mom one Sunday morning in her bedroom, and she was crying uncontrollably. And uh, it scared me. And so I said, Mom, what's wrong? And I kept pressing her, what's wrong? And she says, I don't want to tell you. No, you've got to tell me. I'm all upset now. What's wrong? She said, well, I didn't mean for it to happen this way, but she says, I was just praying for you this morning that you would give your life to Christ. And then it hit me, what if he goes away to college and he never does and he doesn't get to live with me in heaven forever. She said, and it just broke my heart. And I was just sitting here crying over that possibility before God. And I'm here to tell you that bypassed all of my defenses. I did not see that one coming. It penetrated to the core of my being. And I had to ask myself the question that my Sunday school teacher had been asking me for four years. What's keeping me from saying what I truly believe and then giving my life to Christ. And I decided that morning I needed to make a decision before I went away to college. So I called it premeditated salvation. It's kind of like premeditated murder. You know you're going to kill the guy, you take the gun, you kill the guy. Well, this was me going to church, knowing I'm going to give my life to Christ, premeditated salvation. So I went that Sunday morning. At the end of the service, they're singing a song, and in those days they would invite you down, Billy Graham style. And I came down and blessed my pastor, so, so just sensitive to the Lord. I said what I thought was the deal. I said, I'm here to say that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I want Him to forgive my sins and I want to go to heaven. And He said, and you receive Him as the Lord of your life? And I remember thinking back to my conversations with my Sunday school teacher. No, no, no. I just want a ticket to stay out of hell. I I don't want a new boss. I just... but. Now, now, put yourself in my situation. I was 17, going on 18. At 17 years of age, I'm in front of the church, about 250 people in the church. My mom's been going there for four years. All the people that my mom knows have been praying for me and praying for Loretta's son, Steve. And so he finally goes forward, and people are breaking out in tears already. And they're, you, know, you hear the moan when you walk forward. And so when he asked me the question to which the right answer is no, I thought to myself, I'm kind of stuck. You know, you can't just say false alarm. I'm just going to go back and sit down. (laughs) No, no, you're, you're already public. So I did the only thing a teenager knows to do. I decided to lie. But I decided I was not going to lie to God. So in my heart, I don't know if this makes you holier. It probably just makes you more of a hypocrite. I remember doing this in my mind, cross, cross your fingers, 
looking up to God. This is just, you know, I don't know how to get this guy off of me. I don't know how to get out of this situation. But God, I, uh, you know, you and I both know this is not the case. So I said yes to him. And so then he prayed with me and he turned me around. He presented me to the whole church. All those friends of my mom, you know, those grandmotherly types come by. They're weeping uncontrollably with joy. And they gripped me one by one by one, probably took 10 to 15 minutes of one woman or one guy after the other gripping me, crying over me. And so they started crying. I started crying. By the end of that time, I had cried so much, I thought, I felt like I had been saved. (laughs) But here's what I want you to hear. You've got to receive the whole gospel. If he's raised from the dead, then he is Lord. To say you want him in your life as a savior, but not as the Lord is you're receiving some other gospel. Here's my simple testimony. Two weeks later, in my own bedroom in the middle of the night, my guilt by the Holy Spirit got the best of me. And I felt so guilty before God that I had been a hypocrite. The very thing I told myself I would never be. And I remember in my, just the simplicity of praying, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord. God forgave my sins and gave me a peace in my heart where nobody was watching. It was just me and God. Now, I can tell that story long or short. I told you long because we're in church. But it could be as simple as the short version because what's important is the ways in which my commitment to Christ has led to a radically different life. Married to the same woman for 48 years, uh, just having accomplished and seen God work in my life and others' life. It's just such a marvelous thing. So I would say with Paul, I want you to become what Paul is. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that all of us are called to be witnesses that are followers of you. And may we get better at finding opportunities, no matter what the circumstances are, to give gentle pointers to how much you mean to our life and invitations that people could discover it. And then, Lord, I pray for those who have never yet said yes to you as the Lord, the sovereign God, the boss of their life. That, Lord, that maybe today they would say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. And maybe in a couple of weeks they could be baptized as a way to show it. But Lord, may they admit they're a sinner, receive your forgiveness by grace that can't be earned, and then begin the stumbling, if imperfect, walk of following you as the Lord of heaven and the Lord of my life. And I pray this for every one of you. In Jesus' name, amen.